I thrill to hear the prophet of the <clears throat> stand at this pulpit and declare how he sees the work of the Lord rolling forth to fill the earth like that stone cut without hands that Daniel saw in his vision. This work is driven by the Spirit of the Lord and through the operation of priesthood authority given to man. But it moves forward on the wheels of missionary work by those who have responded to the Lord's call to go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The gospel of Jesus Christ, with all of its purity, beauty, and simplicity, has been restored to the earth in these latter days through the great prophet of this dispensation, Joseph Smith. We who have tasted the sweet fruits of the gospel know it as a fountain of faith, hope, and peace, a constant source of joy. Indeed, it is a rare jewel to be treasured and a rare jewel to be shared. There are 60,000 full-time missionaries engaged in the sharing process. Their efforts, coupled with those of state missionaries and members, yielded some 300,000 new converts last year. But this is not enough. Given the importance of the message, the help offered by the Spirit, the number of missionaries, and the size of the field that is ready to harvest, 300,000 new converts per year is not nearly enough. In fact, last year, President Hinckley challenged Church members to significantly increase the number of converts. We are not yet on that prophetically prompted track. This is what prophets do. They help us to reach up to new heights. President David O. McKay advised every member a missionary. President Kimball, lengthen your stride and do it now. President Benson, flood the earth with the Book of Mormon. And now, President Hinckley, increase the number of converts and retain them. Do we need more specific instructions? Let me review the four-step instructions we have received regarding member missionary work. One, identify prayerfully your friends and neighbors who would be the most receptive to the gospel message. Two, introduce the identified individual to the missionaries. Three, involve yourself in the teaching of the gospel preferably in your home. And four, integrate your friends and any other new members into the Church by being attentive and helpful. Through this simple, compact process, we can increase the number of converts, and more importantly, we can help the new converts achieve full fellowship. Increased member involvement is the only way to increase our current conversion rate. Now, we've all heard this many times. Why don't we do better in providing referrals? It's not laziness because Latter-day Saints are not lazy people. I believe that the fear of rejection or the fear of hurting a friendship are the more common restraints to sharing the gospel. But are these fears valid? When you extend to a friend an invitation to meet with the missionaries, you are offering to share something that is most valuable and cherished. Is that offensive? Sister Oaks and I have not found this to be the case. In fact, we have found that when we offer to share the gospel, friendships are strengthened, even though the friends may not embrace the gospel message. Now consider that you are invited to a friend's house for breakfast, and on the table you see a large pitcher of freshly squeezed orange juice from which your host fills his glass, but he offers you none. Finally, you ask, could I have a glass of orange juice? 
And he replies, oh, I'm sorry. I was afraid you might not like orange juice, and I didn't want to offend you by offering you something you didn't desire. (laughs) Now, that sounds absurd, but it's not too far different from the way we hesitate to offer up something far sweeter than orange juice. I have often worried how I would answer some friend about my hesitancy when I meet him beyond the veil. A story related by Elder Christoffel Golden of South Africa refreshed my concerns. He was recently in Lusaka, Zambia, attending a meeting of new converts. A well-spoken, well-dressed stranger with the Book of Mormon in hand walked in, and he stated he had driven past the chapel many times and had wondered what church met there and what they taught for doctrine. At the conclusion of the meeting, this gentleman stood up raised his copy of the Book of Mormon high in the air and asked, Why have you kept this book hidden hidden from the people of Usaka? Why have you kept it a secret? As I heard this story, I flinched that one day some friend might ask me, Why have you kept this Book of Mormon with its message of truth and salvation a secret? My reply, I was afraid I would damage our friendship, will not be very satisfying to either me or my friend. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we may put our fears and our hesitancy behind us and no more keep secret the great treasure that is ours. Now, one last thought regarding missionary work. During my short time in Southeast Africa, I've been overwhelmed by the remarkable service rendered by by senior couple missionaries daily They make significant contributions to the strengthening of the members and to rolling that stone cut without hands forward on its eternal course. What a mighty team for righteousness they make when joined with younger missionaries and the local members. Whether in leadership, proselyting, temple, humanitarian, welfare, or church education services, the contribution of these experienced, testimony-bearing souls is beyond measure. And without exception, I see them deriving great personal satisfaction from their service. If you are retired or retirement eligible and wondering what useful things you might do with the rest of your life, contact your bishop. Let him share with you his exciting list of missionary opportunities. Today, take your spouse by the hand and see if you don't agree that the best thing for all concerned, including your grandchildren, would be for you to accept an assignment to serve the Lord as missionaries. This is His work, and He beckons us to join Him in it. I testify that God, our eternal Father, and His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, live. Christ came to earth and fulfilled His calling as Redeemer of all mankind. I testify that His gospel has been restored in its fullness and that there is a living prophet, Gordon B. Hinckley, guiding this work under the direction of the Father and of the Son. And I so do in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The tumult and the shouting dies. The captains and the kings depart. Still stands thine ancient sacrifice and humble and a contrite heart. Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget.
lest we forget. These immortal words of Rudyard Kipling express my feelings as we bring to a conclusion this wonderful conference of the Church. Following the benediction, we shall depart this great hall, turn off the lights, and lock the doors. You who are listening across the world will switch off your television set or the radio or shut down the Internet. As we do so, I would hope that we will remember that when all is over, still stands thine ancient sacrifice and humble and a contrite heart. I hope that we shall ponder with subdued feelings the talks to which we have listened. I hope that we will quietly reflect on the wonderful things we have heard. I hope that we will feel a little more contrite and humble. All of us have been edified. The test will come in the application of the teachings given. If hereafter we are a little more kind, if we are a little more neighborly, if we have drawn nearer to the Savior with a more firm resolution to follow His teachings and His example, then this conference will have been a wonderful success. If, on the other hand, there is no improvement in our lives, then those who have spoken will have in large measure failed. Those changes may not be measurable in a day or a week or a month. Resolutions are quickly made and quickly forgotten. But in a year from now, if we are doing better than we have done in the past, then the efforts of these days will not have been in vain. We will not remember all that has been said, but there will arise from all of this a spiritual uplift. It may be indefinable, but it will be real. As the Lord said to Nicodemus, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. So it will be with the experience we have enjoyed. And perhaps out of all we have heard, there may be a phrase or a paragraph that will stand out and possess our attention. If this occurs, I hope we will write it down and reflect on it until we savor the depth of its meaning and have made it a part of our own lives. In our family home evenings, I hope we will discuss with our children these things and let them taste the sweetness of the truths we have enjoyed. And when the Ensign Magazine comes out in November with all of the conference messages, please don't just throw it aside with a comment that you have heard it all, but read and ponder the various messages. You will find many things that you missed when you listened to the speakers. I have only one regret concerning the conference. That is that so few of the brethren and sisters have opportunity to speak. It is simply a matter of the constraints of time. Tomorrow morning we will be back at our jobs, back to our studies, 
back to whatever constitutes the busy regimen of our lives, but we can have the memories of this great occasion to sustain us. We can draw nearer to the Lord in our prayers. These can become conversations of thanksgiving. I can never fully understand how the great God of the universe, the Almighty, invites us as His children to speak with Him individually. How precious an opportunity is this! How wonderful that it actually happens! I testify that our prayers, offered in humility and sincerity, are heard and answered. It is a miraculous thing, but it is real. Let us lower our voices in our homes. Let love abound and find expression in our actions. May we walk the quiet ways of the Lord, and may prosperity crown our labors. The great Hosanna salutation in which we participated this morning should remain an unforgettable experience. From time to time, we can repeat quietly in our minds, when we are alone, those beautiful words of worship. I bear witness of the truth of this work and of the living reality of God, our eternal Father, and of His only begotten Son, whose Church this is. I extend my, extend my love to every one of you. God be with you, my dear, dear friends. I invoke the blessings of heaven upon you as we bid you goodbye for a season in the name of him who is our Master, our Redeemer, and our King, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Parents should teach their children to pray. The child learns both from what the parents do and what they say. The child who sees a mother or a father pass through the trials of life with fervent prayer to God and then hears a sincere testimony that God answered in kindness will remember what they saw and heard when their trials come they will be prepared. In time, when the child is away from home and family, prayer can provide the shield of protection the parent will want so much for them to have. Parting can be hard, particularly when the parent and the child know that they may not see each other for a long time. I had that experience with my father. We parted on a street corner in New York City. He had come there for his work. I was there on my way to another place. We both knew that I would probably never return to live with my parents under the same roof again. It was a sunny day around noontime, the streets crowded with cars and pedestrians. On that particular corner, there was a traffic light which stopped the cars and the people in all directions for a few minutes. The light changed to red. The cars stopped. The crowd of pedestrians hurried off the curbs, moving every way, including diagonally across the intersection. The time had come for parting, and I started across the street. I stopped almost in the center, with people rushing by me. 
I turned to look back. Instead of moving off in the crowd, my father was still standing on the corner looking at me. To me, he seemed lonely and perhaps a little sad. I wanted to go back to him, but I realized the light would change, and so I turned and hurried on. Years later, I talked to him about that moment. He told me that I had misread his face. He said he was not sad. He was concerned. He had seen me look back as if I were a little boy uncertain and looking for assurance. He told me in those later years that the thought in his mind had been, Will he be all right? Have I taught him enough? Is he prepared for whatever may lie ahead? There were more than thoughts in his mind. I knew from having watched him that he had feelings in his heart. He yearned for me to be protected, to be safe. I had heard and felt that yearning in his prayers, and even more in the prayers of my mother for all the years I had lived with them. I had learned from that, and I remembered. Prayer is a matter of the heart. I had been taught far more than the rules of prayer. I had learned from my parents and from the Savior's teaching that we must address our Heavenly Father in the reverent language of prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I knew that we never profane his sacred name, never. Can you imagine how the prayers of a child are harmed by hearing a parent profane the name of God? There will be terrible consequences for such an offense to the little ones. I had learned that it was important to give thanks for blessings and to ask for forgiveness and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I had been taught that we ask for what we need and pray for others to be blessed. Give us this day our daily bread. I knew that we must surrender our will. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I had been taught and found it true that we could be warned of danger and shown early what we have done which displeased God. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I had learned that we must always pray in the name of Jesus Christ. But something I had seen and heard had taught me those words were more than a formality. There was a picture of the Savior on the bedroom wall where my mother was bedridden in the years before she died. She had put it there because of something her cousin, Samuel O'Benion, had told her. He had traveled with an apostle who described seeing the Savior in a vision. Elder Benyon gave her that print, saying that it was the best portrayal he had ever seen of the Master's strength of character. So she framed it and placed it on the wall where she could see it from her bed. She knew the Savior, and she loved him. I had learned from her that we do not close in the name of a stranger when we approach our Father in prayer. I knew from what I had seen of her life 
that her heart was drawn to the Savior from years of determined and consistent effort to serve Him and to please Him. I knew the scripture was true, which warns, for how knoweth a man the master whom he has not served, and who is a stranger unto him, and is far from the thoughts and intents of his heart? Years after my mother and father are gone, the words, in the name of Jesus Christ, are not casual for me, either when I say them or when I hear others say them. We must serve him to know the Master's heart, but we also must pray that Heavenly Father will answer our prayers to our hearts as well as to our minds. President George Q. Cannon described the blessing of people coming together, having prayed for such answers. He was speaking of going to a priesthood meeting, yet many of you have come to this meeting with hearts prepared in the way he described in these words. I should enter that assembly with my mind entirely free from all influence that would prevent the operation of the Spirit of God upon me. I should go in a prayerful spirit asking God to write upon my heart His will, not with my own will already prepared and determined to carry out my will, regardless of everyone else's views. If I were to go and all the rest were to go with, with this spirit, then the Spirit of God would be felt in our midst, and that which we would decide upon would be the mind and will of God, because God would reveal it to us. We would see light in the direction where we should go, and we would behold darkness in the direction we should not go. Our goal when we teach our children to pray is for them to want God to write upon their hearts and be willing then to go and do what God asks of them. It is possible for our children to have faith enough from what they see us do and what we teach that they can feel at least part of what the Savior felt as he prayed to have the strength to make his infinite sacrifice for us. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. I have had prayers answered. Those answers were most clear when what I wanted was silenced by an overpowering need to know what God wanted. It is then that the answer from a loving Heavenly Father can be spoken to the mind by the still, small voice and can be written on the heart. Some parents are listening with this question, but how can I soften the heart of my child now grown older and convinced he or she doesn't need God? How can I soften a heart enough to allow God to write His will upon it? Sometimes tragedy will soften a heart, but for some even tragedy is not enough. But there is one need. Even the hardened and proud person cannot believe they can meet for themselves. They cannot lift the weight of sin from their own shoulders. And even the most hardened may at times feel the prick of conscience and thus the need for forgiveness from God. A loving father, Alma, taught that need to his son Coriant in this way. 
And now the plan of mercy could not be brought about except an atonement should be made. Therefore, God himself atoneth for the sins of the world to bring about the plan of mercy to appease the demands of justice, that God might be a perfect, just God and a merciful God also. And then after bearing testimony of the Savior and his atonement, the Father made this plea for a softened heart. O oh, my son, I desire that you should deny the justice of God no more. Do not endeavor to excuse yourself in the least point because of your sins by denying the justice of God, but do you let the justice of God and his mercy and his long-suffering have full sway in your heart and let it bring you down to the dust in humility. Alma knew what we can know, that testifying of Jesus Christ and him crucified had the greatest possibility of his son coming to sense his need for help only God could give. And prayers are answered to those whose hearts are softened by that overwhelming feeling of the need for cleansing. When we teach those we love that we are spirit children, temporarily away from a loving Heavenly Father, we open the door of prayer to them. We lived in His presence before we came here to be tested. We knew His face, and He knew ours. Just as my earthly father watched me go away from Him, our Father in Heaven watched us go into mortality. His beloved Son, Jehovah, left those glorious courts to come down into the world to suffer what we would suffer and to pay the price of all the sins we would commit. He provided for us the only way to go home again to our Heavenly Father and to Him. If the Holy Ghost can just tell us just that much about who we are, we and our children might feel what Enos felt. He prayed this way. And my soul hungered, and I kneeled down before my Maker, and I cried unto him in mighty prayer and supplication for mine own soul. And all the day long did I cry unto him, yea, and when the night came, I did still raise my voice high, that it reached the heavens. And there came a voice unto me, saying, Enos, thy sins are forgiven thee, and thou shalt be blessed. I can promise you that no joy will exceed what you would feel if a child of yours prays in their hour of need and receives such an answer. You will someday be separated from them with a longing in your heart to be reunited. A loving Heavenly Father knows that longing would last forever unless we are reunited as families with Him and His beloved Son. He put in place all His children will need to have that blessing. To find it, they must ask of God for themselves, nothing doubting, as the boy Joseph Smith did. My dad was concerned that day in New York because he knew, as my mother knew, that the only real tragedy would be if we were apart forever. That is why they taught me to pray. They knew we could be together forever, only with God's help and with his assurances. As you will do, they taught prayer best by example. The afternoon my mother died, we went to the family home 
from the hospital. We sat quietly in the darkened living room for a while. Dad excused himself and went to his bedroom. He was gone for a few minutes. When he walked back into the living room, there was a smile on his face. He said that he'd been concerned for her mother. During the time at the hospital, he had gathered her things from her hospital room and thanked the staff. I remember he took a lot of time with a lot of people. He thanked them for being so kind to her. But during that time, he thought of her going into the spirit world just minutes after her death. He was afraid she would be lonely if there was no one to meet her. He had gone to his bedroom to ask his heavenly father to have someone greet Mildred, his wife and my mother. He said that he had been told in answer to his prayer that his mother had met his sweetheart. I smiled at that, too. Grandma Irene was not very tall. I had a clear picture of her rushing through the crowd, her short legs moving rapidly on her mission to meet my mother. Dad surely didn't intend to teach me at that moment about prayer, but he did. I can't remember a sermon from my mother or my father about prayer. They prayed when times were hard and when they were good, and they reported in matter-of-fact ways how kind God was, how powerful, and how close. The prayers I heard most were about what it would take for us to be together forever. And the answers which remain written on my heart seem most often to be the assurances that we were on the path. When I saw in my mind my grandmother rushing to my mother, I felt joy for them and a longing to bring my sweetheart and our children to such a reunion. That longing is why we must teach our children to pray. I testify that our Heavenly Father answers the pleadings of faithful parents to know how to teach their children to pray. I testify that because of the Atonement of Jesus Christ, we can have eternal life in families if we honor the covenants offered in this, His true Church. I so testify as His servant in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If I would be asked what in my understanding is the most important event to have happened on earth in the last 200 years, I would answer without any hesitation. It is the consequence of the prayer of a young boy who in the early years of the 19th century in upstate New York knelt before God and asked questions of eternal truth. This young man with the name Joseph Smith became in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ the instrument to restore to mankind the knowledge of the long-lost and nearly forgotten truth, the knowledge about us human beings, who we are, where we came from, what the meaning and purpose of our earthly existence is, and why mankind has experienced so much misery and injustice. 
Eventually, answers were also given to mankind's questions of life after death and our final destiny. Even to this day, more than 42 years after I accepted, by my own choice, the Lord's sacred covenant of baptism, I am still in a state of awe at all of the marvelous and miraculous happenings of the Restoration. Not only were we permitted to learn all about the essential meaning of the Atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also the important meaning of the priesthood of God was revealed, and it was finally restored to act in caring love and patience to bring about the choice of salvation to all. Time will not allow me to talk more about the details of this marvelous work in our time, but I feel to talk about one key aspect in the Lord's kingdom that, if not understood, may result in the fact that the whole picture may never be quite in focus. In order to come to the point, I want to tell you of a faithful brother who was a member of the same branch in my home country of Germany in the early years of my membership. He was living in humble circumstances and felt very blessed to have recently begun a job in a small privately owned company. He told me about an upcoming event where all of the employed people were invited to participate in a traditional company dinner party. He was concerned because it, he knew that there would be a big beer party in the end of this meeting, and the boss being probably the heaviest beer drinker of them all. But he also knew that it would be considered very impolite if he did not attend the dinner at all. When I saw him again after that dinner event occurred, I saw him with the most happy, deep inner glow, and he could not wait to tell me what had happened. Because he was new in the company the boss had sat right next to him, wanting to get to know him better. As the evening progressed, the brother saw his wildest fears confirmed, because the boss would not tolerate that he would not drink beer with him. And he said, what kind of church is that that would not permit you to drink even a glass of beer with me? The fear of my friend did not grow into panic as he was able to calmly answer his boss that the reason he was not drinking had nothing to do with the church that he belonged to, but that he himself had made a sacred covenant with God that he would not drink. If he would ever break this covenant, how could he continue to stay true to that which he would ever promise? And how could he be trusted, even by his employer, that he would not lie or steal or cheat? According to my friend, the owner was deeply touched by this statement, and he hugged him, speaking words of profound admiration and confidence. My dear brothers and sisters, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, 
many new members, specifically when they come from countries other than the United States, learn for the first time the real dimension of the word freedom. Freedom for most people in the world means freedom from the absence of malice or pain or suppression. But the freedom that God means when he deals with us goes one step further. He means freedom too, the freedom to act in the dignity of our own choice. What then does it mean to be free? Freedom means to have matured to the full knowledge of our dangerously many responsibilities as a human being. We have learned that everything we do and even say or think has consequences. We realize that too long we have believed that we were victims of circumstances. In the Gospel of John 8.32, we read the following. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. End of quote. As we open our hearts to the message of God's truth, as it was restored in our time, we begin to understand why there was and still is so much misery, pain, suffering, and even starvation. In the same dimension as we are learning to accept the revealed truth in our own life, our faith in the living God, Son of God will grow, and therefore we will receive spiritual gifts of heretofore unknown capacity. We will learn that nothing is impossible for those who believe in Jesus Christ. False bondages will be loosened. Narrow thinking, born in tragedies or false traditions, will disappear. The more our understanding of the vastness and the completeness of the plan of salvation is developing, the more we see ourselves in our smallness, in our incompleteness, and seeing ourselves in that humility with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, we let us understand and finally accept this most sacred covenant with our Heavenly Father in the form of baptism. We gladly will submit ourselves into this covenant, knowing that there is a big difference between mere desire and covenant. When we just desire something, we will work towards achieving it only when convenient. But when we are bound by a sacred covenant, like baptism, we are learning to overcome all obstacles through obedience, and in so doing, we will be blessed with the presence of the Spirit and therefore eventually with achievement. We are beginning to become alive as we take knowingly full responsibility for our own life and as we stop blaming circumstances. One thing, of course, we know. Having freedom, too, means that we have the potential of making wrong choices. Wrong choices have their merciless consequences, and when they are not stopped and corrected, they lead us into misery and pain. 
Wrong choices, if not corrected, will lead us to the ultimate possible disaster in each person's life, to become separated from our Heavenly Father in the world to come. When we have received this life-enabling message, we begin to understand that in our early life we were like a football player standing in the middle of the field, totally depressed, because we did not know the purpose of the, and the rules of the game. We did not know which team we belonged to, and we did not even know who was our coach. Only in the awareness of the restored gospel our game plan becomes clear, and we comprehend that Jesus Christ and his restored Church and priesthood are the only way for us to succeed in our earthly experience. Jesus Christ wants to empower our lives according to our own righteous choices, to that dimension that through our faith and our doings, the circumstances whose prisoners we were in the past will eventually change. In the Book of Mormon we learn that the Redeemer monitors our lives. Together with a multitude of holy angels, we read, quote, Have miracles ceased? Behold, I say unto you, Nay. Neither have angels ceased to minister unto the children of man. For behold, they are subject unto him to minister according to the word of his command, showing themselves unto them of strong faith. End of quote. In this freedom that we have received in our time through our understanding of his divine plan for us, we stand in our full responsibility. Let us always stay close to the loving, caring hand of our Redeemer and our Savior to find safety and joy. I say this in deep humility, and I bear you my testimony as your brother and servant that I know that Jesus lives and that he is the head of this work. And I say this in Jesus' name. Amen.